I do thank you for that reminder, Lord. These songs, Lord, they, they hit our hearts right where we are. Lord, that last verse especially. God, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, I ask that you would take our hearts. Lord, remind us again that they are sealed with you in heaven because of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, above all else, Lord, we want to adore your name. We want to know you. Lord, above all else, I pray that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise. Lord, thank you that you do this by your grace and your mercy. It's not because of us. Lord, you are the one who are faithful. You are the one who does good according to your will. Lord, in spite of us. Lord, I pray that as we hear from you and your word, Lord, that our hearts would be reminded again of all that you've done and that we would rejoice and that you would fix our minds on your goodness, your grace, your love, your mercy, your compassion, which truly is new every single morning. Lord, thank you. Lord, we're here. We're waiting. Lord, we need you. Show us yourself. Show us your glory, we pray. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. I trust that our times together have been over the past few weeks, been richly uh, edifying, encouraging to you as we're back in Philippians. And I hope, just as way of reminder, the very things that we've been talking about have been used by God to really encourage you and to strengthen your faith in Him and your rejoicing in Him. As we've looked two weeks ago, we looked at the idea of rejoicing in the Lord and what matters to God is a heart that rejoices in Him. And we could put forward all of these things that we want to do and and accomplish for God, but at the end of the day, what God wants is a heart that delights in him, that is his. And so you see that Paul in verse 3 of Philippians 3 says that we are the circumcision, We we are given grace by God and made his own, and therefore we worship or serve by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in our flesh, what we're able to do. And then last week, Jasper looked at Paul's life, and he, he recognizes that he has many reasons to put confidence in his flesh. He says, here's all the things that I could be confident in myself in. And he goes through his pedigree and all the various things that is incredible. And yet he understands that every single thing that he has as gain, he would consider as loss compared to knowing Christ. And the only reason, Jasper reminded us, the only reason that we would consider something as less valuable is because we found something of more value. And he shared the parables, as Jesus shared, about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field that some man found, and he went out and sold everything, and in his joy, he bought the field. And he also gave us the parable, reminded us of the parable of the pearl of great price. This guy who made a living on selling and buying pearls, He finally found the one pearl and he sold everything else and got that one pearl. And again, when you see the value of Christ, Paul, like Lord willing us, everything else would become rubbish 
And it's a willingness to lose everything for the sake of gaining Christ. A willingness to lose anything for the sake of gaining Christ and wanting an intimate knowledge of Christ. And as I was studying this, I think of Paul the Apostle. And and typically, as I think of Paul, I think of him like a super Christian. You know, if there was a superman as a Christian, it would be Paul the Apostle. I mean, if you just read Acts, you're looking at this guy going, this guy is literally unstoppable. He gets stoned and he doesn't die. He gets up and goes back into the city and meets the people that he just got kicked out and stoned by. None of us would do this. He's on a ship. It's going to be destroyed and he gets a word from the Lord that you have to stay on the ship. Everybody else wants to leave the ship and he goes, no, 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 you leave the ship. You're going to die. Stay on the ship. It's going to crash. We're going to end up in the water. But you know what? We'll be fine. And you're looking at this idea of Paul, this, this superman. But I look at Paul's life, and as I'm looking at this passage today, Paul didn't have a very high, lofty view of himself. We think of Paul, and we're like, yeah, Paul, you're way up here. And Paul would go, no, 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 I'm actually not. I'm down here. Because Paul understood that the calling of God, even though it looks upward, and we're all progressing forward and upward, he understood that the trajectory of his life was this way first. That his life, he wanted to know that he would suffer loss. And in the world's view, in fact, people called him, Paul, you must be out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And he looks at him and he goes, no, I really wish that all of you were like me, except without the chains that I have, that I'm bearing. And he wants them to look like him. And next week, we're actually look at, he uses the phrase, I want you to imitate me. So what is it that Paul is showing us in this passage today? And I would say that Paul is showing us and reminding us of the very life of Christ, that first comes humility. First comes humility in our life, and then comes exaltation. So the upward call that we're going to see is to humility first, and then exaltation. So look with that as I read our passage today. I actually want to read uh, 3, 1 through 16. So let's read this just to give it some context. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself... I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In fact, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends fully on faith. Because I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, man, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own 
Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Notice that he starts immediately with this explanation of the fact that he has not already obtained this or already made perfect. As you read even 7 through 11, you're like, again, this guy is just insanely amazing. He, he wants to know Christ. He's, he's considering everything is loss compared to gaining Christ. And he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. And Paul experienced the power of God. He went around healing people and saw all of these magnificent miracles accompanying many times his message. And he says, and I've seen the power of his resurrection and and actually I've shared in his sufferings again, making or becoming like him in his death. I've seen these things. And you're like, man, this guy is amazing. And then he says, but that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And some people may have thought, oh man, this guy is like, if here's perfection, here's, here's Paul. Here he is, right here. He's like, right there. And he goes, listen, brothers, let me, let me give you some perspective of where I'm at. He says, I have not already obtained this. I am not already perfect. And I love that he recognizes that. He recognizes and reminds all of us that none of us have arrived in our walk with Christ. None of us. There's not one person here, no matter how old or mature or advanced you are in your understanding of Scripture and all of these things, none of us will ever or have ever arrived this side of eternity. None of us have. But I think the temptation for most of us is to think that we are at least far better than other people. I've arrived in comparison to others. And Paul says, I'm not even going to look at that comparison. I'm going to look forward to Christ. Because notice he says that I press on to make it my own. So he recognizes the distance. He recognizes the lack. But it doesn't diminish his desire to press on to know Christ. He says, I want to make it my own. So if I could read it again, these, these words are similar. So the idea of obtained is the same word as make it my own. So he says like this, not that I've already grabbed hold of it. But I press on in order to grab hold of it. And then he says, because Christ Jesus has grabbed hold of me. Those are all the same words. Isn't that amazing? So I haven't already grabbed hold of it. But you know what I do? I press on to grab hold of it. Why do I press on to grab hold of it? Because Christ has grabbed hold of me. Christ has made me his own. I love that he says that. Because here's here's the thing that I look at. I think of kids, this idea of I press on to make it my own or that desire of this consistency and we'll see it again in the next verse. There's something of a persistence to the Christian life that is difficult and frustrating and hard. I think of me as a kid. How many times as a kid did you ask your parents, can I be done? Anybody ask that? Anybody hear that recently, dad, mom, can I be done? Can I be done? You, di- you just stop. What did you even do? What, can you be done? Let's start first and then we'll talk about being done. But I think of that in my own heart. I'm looking at it going, Mom, Dad, can I be done? What's at the heart of my question? 
The heart of my question after I ask, can I be done, is because I believe that there's something more important that I should be spending my time doing. And that's what I would rather be doing. When Paul looks at it, he doesn't look at following Christ as, okay, am I done yet? Is is that far enough, God? He looks and he goes, I don't have Jesus yet. Clearly, I'm not done. I am not glorified yet. Clearly, I am not done. And it doesn't diminish his desire at all. And that's where he's looking at this idea of maturity. How many of us still think of our Christian walk in those terms of, God, can I be done? Or can I take a break today? Or is it really as, as important, perhaps, as you're making it, Lord, today? It's just been a really hard day. And I think of dragging our feet. But again, his motivation, his motivation for movement towards Christ is Christ himself pulling him along. Christ himself is pulling him along. Again, Christ has made me his own. And let me remind you again, all of the discussions that we have today of pressing on and moving forward is not our earning something. We're not earning something by our pressing forward. This is simply responding to. Again, look at how he says it. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. God is the one who acts first and then our actions follow. We don't act first and then God acts. God acts first in making us his own and then you and I act accordingly. We respond accordingly. And I would argue that our pursuit of the Christian towards Christ is evidence that God has pursued us first. A Christian who says, yeah, I don't really need Christ, doesn't understand the reality or doesn't even know truly the reality of God calling them to himself. Because again, he's calling them to himself. The pursuit of the Christian is evidence that Christ has pursued you first. So let me ask you this. Are you pursuing knowing Christ? Are you wanting to make him your own? Is there a desire in you to know him, to follow him, to love him, to seek him, to gain him more? I think of this idea again of a temptation to believe we've arrived or we've done enough. We've become settled in our efforts. And so Paul, look at verse 13. He says it again. So not that I've already obtained this or already imperfect. And then he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Brothers, remember again, I'm still in process. There's something of moving forward. And then he says a very famous line. He says, but one thing I do. And this is what he does. He says, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. And this is really the crux of the passage. This is the most important part of the passage because this is really where you and I can evaluate our spiritual maturity. I think of the pillar that we have of spiritual growth. All of us are in a process of growth. We would admit that. That God did not save us to just sit. God saved us to serve and to grow and to become like Christ. And so as we look at it, we think a person who is saved is in process of becoming more like Christ. And so Paul gives us this evaluation. You want to know if you're spiritually mature, here's an evaluation of it. Because in verse 15 he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Well, what what way are we trying to? 
to think. And he says this, forget what lies behind, strain forward to what lies ahead. Now, what does he mean by forget what lies behind? When I've read this for years, I often thought it was that idea of you forget your past sins, right? Understand that God's mercy is there and forget the the pain and the frustration that had been there. God forgot your past. You need to forget it also. Forget those sins. Move into the grace and goodness of God. And that's absolutely true. I'd say an amen to that, but that has nothing to do with this passage. Nothing. In fact, the opposite is truly what we're looking at. It's not forget your past mistakes. In fact, over and over again, it's interesting that Paul tells us to remember those things. He says in Ephesians 2, he says, remember you Gentiles, you were once far off. You were once alienated from God. You were without hope, without God in the world. Remember that. In 1 Corinthians 6, he reminds them, he has all this list. Think of this. These people, these people, these people, these people, these people, none of them will enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes, and such were some of you. That's what you guys were. He reminds them of that. And you're like, oh man, but that brings shame. No, it doesn't. It actually recalls to you the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. That's a great joy for you to rejoice in the Lord. What he says to forget what lies behind, he actually tells you it's the very things that you and I would be confident in. Forget your past success. Forget the accolades. Forget the things that you would look at as confidence in your flesh. He's telling you to forget the very things that he's trying to forget. The things that he considered as loss. Again, none of those things are bad. It wasn't bad that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, or all of these various things that he's listed. None of those are bad, but all of them are reason for him to boast in his own merit. And he says, that's the stuff that I want to forget. So think of it as forgetting your accomplishments, forgetting a good reputation, forgetting your good moral actions, forget your wonderful upbringing, forget anything that would give you confidence in yourself. That's what he's telling you to forget. And let's be honest, these are all things that you and I want to be known for, aren't they? I don't want to be known as someone who is in need of grace. Think of a job interview. I think of young people going to like their first job interview. Imagine if the advice they said was, hey, just be honest. Okay. And so you go there. And you go, yeah, just yesterday I yelled at my parents. I'm pretty disrespectful to them. I'm lazy. I complain. And I will definitely make fun of you behind your back. In fact, I'll probably quit in four months. So when do I start? Could you imagine? That's your job interview. What do we do for job interviews? What do we do for resumes? We put every accomplishment, every good thing. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. But the reality is that's what the world wants to know. You know what God wants to know? God wants to know that you recognize that he is all you need. You don't need those past things. You don't need the accomplishments. You don't look back to those things for your confidence. He says, the things that I want you to be confident in is me and my son and what we've accomplished on your behalf and that the spirit of God is in you seeking to drive in you a worship of my son that you would glory in him. I think of even in small group, I think of sharing in any group where Christians are present. I think of the the temptation that all of us have to do one-up stories. Yeah, well, you should hear what I did. What if we did one-down stories? This is how much more I need God's grace. Can you imagine? Could you imagine? You think you need God's grace. You should see what I did this week. 
Man, do I need Jesus. And then rejoice in Jesus. That'd be pretty amazing. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Forget those things that you would consider accomplishments. Because all of those things would remove your dependence on Christ. So let me say it like this. The things you should remember in your past are the things that would help you rejoice in the Lord. The things you forget in your past are the things that you would use to rejoice in you. That's what he says, I'm going to forget those things. I think of the temptation even in my past as I look at it. I could say things like, well, I've preached good sermons before. I'll be, I'll be fine. I went to school for this. I'll be fine. These people, they, they love me. They encourage me. I'll be fine. I was successful in my last job. I'll be fine. Look at all the money I made. I can't say this one, but look at all the money I'm making. I'll be fine. Look at the house I live in. Look at all of this. I'll be fine. Again, we're looking at things that would give us confidence. I'll be fine because of the past that I have seen this happen can be a means of us being accomplished in ourself. And I find it interesting that God's not asking us to be fine here. He's asking us to rejoice in Jesus Christ because he's the greatest gift. He's the greatest reason to rejoice, not our past, him. He hasn't changed, therefore always in our present we can rejoice in the Lord. And as Paul says, everything that I would consider as gain, I consider it now loss compared to having and knowing Christ. But what lies behind for some of us is different. I think of it like this. Some of us may look back and say, Charles, you know, there's not really a lot of accomplishments, a lot of good things that I would see in my past. In fact, it's riddled with difficulty. Can I say to you that that might be a means of God's grace to you to cause you to praise him easier? Because there's things that you see that God has brought you through that you've relied solely on him for a longer period of time and therefore you've been taught to rely on him and rely on him. And so even now you have a greater heart to look for him, to seek him. I think in my temptation is that I can look back and if I see a lot of successes or even benefits that I actually have greater reasons to trust in myself. There's a temptation looking in my past to trust in myself. And the Bible reminds us of this temptation. Even, even for those of us who believe, again, that we've arrived, or that we're doing well. One of the warnings is that uh, the Bible tells us that it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And richness is more than money. More than money. It's those who act in self-sufficiency. That's what it is. I think of Revelation 3.17, and I believe I have this on the slide. Revelation 3.17, this is the church in Laodicea. Jesus says to them, he says, you say I am rich. Notice, I have everything I want. That's what richness is. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. That's all it is. So richness isn't necessarily in abundance. It's just you have enough. You have plenty. And then Jesus says to them, but you don't, you don't realize truly that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I think of how often I forget what I've been saved from because it's so normal for me to just go back into the circuit of thinking a certain way, of living self-sufficient. It is so natural to us. 
And let's be honest, as God is asking this, and I think of Paul wrestling over this, it's very hard for us to give up things that we love. One of my favorite small verses. So if you like to memorize the Bible, you typically find the smaller verses to memorize. Like John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. I love that. Yeah, I know the Bible. Of course I do. Here's another one for you. Luke seventeen thirty two. It says simply this. Remember Lot's wife. That's all it says. Remember Lot's wife. Why do we have to remember Lot's wife? Because she did not want to give up something that her heart loved. Even though God condemned it, God saved them out of it. She turns around. Her heart longed back for the very thing that she left. That God in his grace and his mercy had saved her from. She's walking and she turns and she looks and immediately is judged by God. Jesus warns us also in other places. He says, anyone who puts their hands to the plow and turns back, it's not worthy to be my disciple. There's something about understanding the cost and moving forward, forgetting the past and moving forward that is necessary. And that's what Paul is drawing on in this passage. And I may look in the past and see reasons to boast. And so often when I face the future, it's unknown. Many times I don't know what's going to happen. And you know what I am tempted to do is always to look back and say, well, let's see my accomplishments up here. Okay. And then I gauge my confidence on whether or not I've done something similar. And I often act in my own self-sufficiency because I see, oh, well, yeah, I faced that before right there. And look, I was successful there, so I'll be fine over here. Again, that's worldly wisdom. That's worldly thoughts. That is not being a person who is spiritually mature. Paul says that I would boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. Why? Because through him, the world has been crucified to me. That way of thinking is gone from me. I can't think that way anymore. I've been crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Again, forgetting what lies behind. But then the contrast is straining forward to what lies ahead. This is a great running term. If you are a runner, this is for you. If you're not a runner, just picture it with me. Watch, watch the Olympics later on and watch the people run and go, wow, they're fast. I wasn't really into running unless there were dogs chasing me. That was really the motivation I had to run really fast. Or my brothers. I said something really foolish and they wanted to hit me. I would run pretty fast then. But I think of this idea of straining. Again, straining forward to what lies ahead. One of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. You guys, I know some of you, if you've watched that movie, you're already thinking of the theme song. Great. Just let it echo in your mind. Don't sing it out loud. But I think of Eric Little. The story's based on two guys in particular. But Eric Little, he's a guy who runs, and he's not even supposed to compete in the 400-meter race. He was supposed to do the 100. And he chose not to run on the Sabbath because it's just his conviction. And throughout the movie, you're watching this guy run, and there's a pleasure in him in running that everybody sees. And he sees running as part of his worship of God's glory. In fact, in the movie, he says, I believe to his sister or someone there, he says, listen, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that. God made me fast, and when I run... I feel his pleasure. And if you watch the movie, he runs and he tips his head back 
and runs and just takes off running, straining forward. He never looks back. And in the movie, you see this guy who sees Eric coming up on his side and he's turning, watching Eric come and Eric's just boof, 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 running right around him. And I look at that and I go, God, that is a beautiful picture of someone who is just straining forward, loving, rejoicing in the fact that they even get to run. Church, let that be true of us. This is a race that we've been invited to by the grace and mercy and glory of God. And that's the goal. The goal is him. And so when we run, straining forward to what lies ahead, that's the direction we need to be going. Straining forward. And the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that he says. That's the prize. Think of that. Resurrection, glorification, finally being united to Christ. Finally being united to Christ. Knowing him fully. I think of Psalm 1611, if we ever think that being with Christ is not gain, as Paul says. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, fullness of joy in his presence. He says, at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That is amazing. That's the prize. That's the upward call. That's where we're going. And I want it to go upward and I want it to go forward and I want it to move forward as quickly as possible. But I think of Lord of the Rings. I think of the scene in the Council of Elrond. It's one of my favorite scenes where they're sitting there talking and they're arguing who's going to take the ring to Mordor and Frodo goes, I'll take it. I'll take the ring to Mordor, but I don't know the way. And all of a sudden you've got all these guys coming and, and saying, yes, we'll come with you and we'll do all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you've got Sam. He's not even supposed to be there. And he sneaks in and he's like, oh, yes, it's hard to keep him away from you because he's always here at a secret council meeting. And then Mary and Pippin run over and they're like, hey, we're coming too. And then they run up next to him too. And he's like, what, are the, what is going on? And then all of a sudden he looks at him and he goes, you shall be the fellowship of the ring. And I feel like many of us are like Pippin where he goes, great. So where are we going? There's no idea. No idea. Where are we going? Do you have any idea what you just signed up for? You have no idea what you signed up for. You're going to Mount Doom, potentially dying. I think of that in terms of this. I think of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And many of us want, again, the trajectory. We want to go up. And we're like, yes, yes, Jesus will follow you, not knowing that some of the stipulations that Jesus puts on us is the fact that you and I understand where he's actually asking us to go. It's not like this. It is like this. It is greater and greater humility, sometimes shame in regards to the world's thoughts of us, because we are asked to follow Jesus. The Bible reminds us, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way. Well, how did he walk? All you have to do is turn over to Philippians 2. And he says, have this mind in you, which was in Christ. He did not consider equality, the things in his past, in fact. The things that he had, a thing to be grasped. He didn't do that. In fact, he left those things. And he humbled himself by becoming a servant. Becoming a human. And not only that, but he humbled himself to the point of obedience to death. And death on a cross. So you see the trajectory of Jesus down. But then it says, then God highly exalted him. Again, humility first, then exaltation. Can I say as Christians, we don't like this message? We don't like this message. I don't like this message. Humility first, 
I just want to follow Jesus and just keep going up. But look at what Jesus reminds us in Luke 9, 23 through 25. Jesus says to all of them, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Notice these are promises. These aren't options. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life, you will save it. You will gain no profit if you gain the whole world and lose yourself. And again, this idea of denying yourself, taking up your cross daily and following me, this is basic entrance level Christianity. This is the call for all of us. This isn't optional. This isn't like, if I like that thought, then I'll receive that. If anyone would come after me, you must do this. Because if you don't do this and you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose it for my sake, guess what? You will actually save it. Or as Paul says, you will gain the very thing that you would want. So again, downward trajectory, humility. Jim Elliott, very famously reflecting on these truths, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the essence of faith. It is the war between putting confidence in our flesh and actually rejoicing in the Lord. The the war is always that you and I are going to want to be confident in our accomplishments. And God says, no, no, no. Rejoice in me. Keep straining forward. And I think of the reality of my pursuits. I think, Charles, are all your pursuits based simply on what you can see? Or is there evidence in your life that you're pursuing those things which are not seen? Do you look a little strange to people around you because you talk about someone who's invisible on a regular basis? Or do you only talk about those things that you can see? Because that's what the world is going to talk about. Because they don't have the faith to see the unseen. Do you? And again, I think the mature understand this. Again, let those of us who are mature think this way. The mature person understands that the value of knowing Christ is willingly suffering the loss of all things for his sake. That's the value of Christ. It's it's the fact that I would actually show that I would be willing to lose this. And also that I realize I have not attained this. And notice what it says in verse 16. I'll come back to the end of verse 15. But it says in 16, let us hold true to what we have attained. Attained. And I would argue that this is all of us have attained the same standard. So the standard of faith is the same. The standard of faith is the same. That we walk by faith, not by sight. That we're called to forget the things that lie behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. What's different is the life of faith. The life of faith is varied. Look at the end of 15. He says, and if anything... So again, let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, he says, God will reveal that also to you. The means of God removing your confidence in the flesh is different. The the journey that every one of us has is different. The standard is the same. We're all called 
to want to know Christ to the loss of other things. The process we're in and our thoughts of those things that we're trying to lose is different. God in his grace reveals to us the need, greater need of us to move into greater conformity to Christ. He says, if you think any other way regarding this, God will reveal that to you. He trusts and is confident that the one who began the work is able to complete it. So I think of this. I think of my walk in Christ. The things that God is showing me, I cannot hold the same standard in the sense of what it looks like for the two of us to be exactly the same. I think of parents being upset with their kids not being in the progress of their faith as much as they would like them to be. God will reveal that to them also. I think of the difficulty that it is, the frustration even. Maybe you're talking to someone and they just don't get it. Again, God will reveal that to them also. Continue to entrust them to God. Keep speaking the truth to them. The standard is still the same. Let's not make any confusing points. They must not put confidence in their flesh and they are called to rejoice in the Lord. But the manner of when that happens is in the hand of God. And what it looks like for each individual person is also in the hands of God. We don't have time to turn there, but Hebrews 11 is very clear that all of the people in Hebrews 11 had humble faith in things unseen. It says that about all of them. It says that all of them did not receive what was promised. All of them. But notice that there's a difference in the life of each of those individual people that lived. Enoch, he walked with God and was taken. That's not true of every single one of us that walk with God. We don't just walk around with God and all of a sudden, boom, we're gone. He did. I think of Noah. He built an ark for over 100 years for something that he didn't even see yet. It says he didn't even have visible reason why he would build an ark, but he did. He did. Moses, he had a different outcome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had a different outcome. You have Rahab in there. She has a different outcome. And then it talks about how there are people who, they had armies that fled from them and all these different good things. And then it has all this list of people that none of us want to be. It's the people who were sawn in two, who actually died. But in all of it, it says, all of these people, the world was not worthy of. And again, here's the reality. God asks of us to have faith in him, to rejoice in him, in the things that you and I do not see, to not put confidence in the past or in our own flesh. Simply rejoice in the Lord. What that looks like in each one of us, God will reveal in his grace over time. He is trustworthy in that way. He's trustworthy. But the idea of all of us is that you and I would have the scope of humility now, that we would understand that God is calling us to greater love, greater obedience, greater sacrifice. Or as Paul says, I want to know him in his sufferings. The end of that prayer of the Valley of Vision was that you and I would suffer. I don't like that word. But that's exactly what God is asking of us. It's been appointed to us, as Philippians says, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. I look at Eric Little again. I mentioned him, but some of you might not know that Eric Little, after he was an Olympic champion, he went and served as a missionary in China. He was born in China to a missionary family and then was a missionary later on. 
And he was a missionary during the time when northern China was taken over by the Japanese in World War II. And he was taken and put into a concentration camp. And he served there with his brother. His brother was a medical doctor. And he was very well known, very well loved by the youth. And he wrote a book on discipling and he used it to counsel and to help the youth in the camp. And one of the topics he wrote about was the idea of surrender, surrendering to God, total surrender. And on one occasion he had a stroke and he was hospitalized. And he's there in the hospital and he's talking to the nurse about the book that he's reading. He's counseling her even in the hospital after a stroke on surrender. And this is what he says, and I want to show this to you. He says, as we start this course of readings, we should first surrender our lives to God and dedicate ourselves to doing his will. He says, God's will is only revealed to us step by step. He reveals more as we obey what we know. Surrender means that we are prepared to follow God's guidance wherever or however he guides, no matter what the cost. I love that. That basically summarizes much of what we're saying here. God is going to reveal to each one of us the ways in which he's asking us to move into greater surrender. He reveals it to us step by step. The more we obey, the more he reveals. Again, Faithful with a little, you're trusted faithful with much. He's not going to overwhelm you with all of these things immediately. He's faithful, little bit at a time. But he says simply this. Surrender is simply being prepared in our minds and our thoughts of what God is going to guide us into. Wherever or however he guides, no matter what the cost. So let me say this. All of us are called to live to the standard of faith, to see that humility now is what God is asking of us, and then exaltation. So until God reveals more to us, this is what we should be seeking. We should be focusing on rejoicing in the Lord. Standard. Every single one of us, rejoice in the Lord. Find your confidence and strength in Him and Him alone. Where you are, don't be looking at what other people are doing. Don't be discontent because other people are progressing in different ways that you're not. Just simply be there rejoicing in the Lord, following him, glorying in Christ Jesus. He will show you what you must do. But all of us are to remain open to the guidance of the Spirit. For those of us who are moving forward or maybe even content in ourselves, we also need to be mindful that God is moving us forward. God might move some of you from this church to go to a different location perhaps even in the world. Maybe some of you are going to be asked later on to to be a part of a church plant or to be a part of what God is doing in another location. These are things that all of us need to be open to. We cannot become satisfied. Well, do you know what that will mean, that I would lose, that I would... Yes. Do you know how many people have lost those things and enjoyed the fact that God had taken them away? Because we're going to look back and we want the normal things. We want the comfort of this life. And the openness that we have is simply, Lord Jesus, where are you asking me to rejoice in you? Where are you asking me to also move into greater dependence on you? What is it that I can give? What is it that you want? What is it, Lord Jesus? Where is it? I want to see it and I want to follow. I want to strain forward to that very calling that you have on my life. So be teachable. Be willing to move. 
As Eric Little said, surrender means prepared to follow wherever or however he guides. I think of this in the reality that none of us are called to be idle Christians. None of us are called to simply believe we're coasting. We're not allowed to be self-confident Christians. But let's be honest. As we said, God will reveal those things to you. Are you asking? Are you asking God to reveal these things to you? I think of Paul, where he says the pursuit actually has a conclusion. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And then he says, now I know that there's in store for me a crown of righteousness in the Lord, the righteous judge. He'll give to me, not only to me, but to anyone who longs for his appearing. And we don't know when that day will come. I want to close with a story of Eric Little. I've told you a little bit about him. Let me give you the conclusion. As he had that stroke, 10 days after that time, he actually was having a conversation with this same nurse again. And his last words, missionaries have said, were this. It's complete surrender. His last words were, it's complete surrender. After he spoke those words, he suffered a seizure. And he went into a coma. And that evening, around 9.30, he died at the age of 43. And they found out later on that he had an inoperable brain tumor. And he had no idea it was there. And he died five months before the rest of the people were released from the camp. And here's an Olympic champion who gave his life so that other people would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Not looking back at his accolades and all the things that he was known for and well-loved by the people in his country. But he left those things so that he would follow God and he ministered the idea of complete surrender. There was a man who reflected on Eric's life and he wrote a little memoir called The Dash Between the Dates. And he says this, On every tombstone, whether simple or ornate, there's only one dash, only one hyphen between the dates. The character and quality of our lives vary greatly, yet when all is said and done, we become precisely equal. They put one dash between the birth date and the death date. We get one dash through life. That's it. No seconds, no restarts. Everybody finishes. He says, some dash through life with great flair and style. Others become a quiet blur. Some run with long strides, leaving only toe marks in the sand. He says, but most leave an erratic trail of footprints with more than a few heel marks. They show evidence of being lost. Yet having lost their direction, they seem to run all the faster. He says, the content of our dash varies, but in the end, the workmen still chisel only one dash. He says, it reminds us of the truth that just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ Jesus himself was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Jesus even had one dash between his dates. And in the end, Men reduce all living to the cold mark on the stone. So those of us who live a life worthy of the Lord, following in the footsteps of Jesus, this is what we find. This is we find the end of earth's dash to be the beginning of heaven's glory. Church, what a great reminder to strain forward because all the things in this earth will soon be gone. And what will last is heaven's glory. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do ask that you would help us to remember, Lord, that in any circumstance of our life, Lord, that you ask us to follow you. But Lord Jesus, not just to follow you, but to rejoice in doing it, Lord, because you are the one who is faithful. And Lord, we can believe everything, everything that you've said to us about yourself, your care, your compassion, your presence, your strength, Lord, all of it is there. Lord, I know that in my heart, the heart of your people, Lord, that we're so easily swayed by the things that we could have confidence in, Lord. Give us strength to see it and to have it removed, Lord. Lord, I thank you for your patience that many of us are in different stages of understanding that, Lord. But remind us again that each one of us must be pursuing you because you've pursued us. Lord, eventually we will be with you in eternity. Lord, thank you for that glorious joy. We love you.
his head back, fully engulfed in the joy of the Lord. Last week, I got to spend the week in the Colorado Rocky Mountain skiing. And yeah, it was quite the experience. And listen, with each passing hour, each passing mile of skiing, my legs ached more and more and more. But the pleasure I received from doing that was worth the pain that I experienced. And it reminds me of the straining we are to do in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If he is your pleasure, the pain is insignificant. It's not worth it because you're willing to push through the pain in order to experience the pleasure of being in relationship with Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not your pleasure, he needs to be today. We're asking you to come down. One of our elders, one of our staff members will be here to speak with you about that. But don't leave here if Jesus Christ is not your pleasure. Hey, if you're new with us, I'm going to be down here. I'd love to meet you. Come on down front. Know this Summit Church. You are loved. And we'll see you next week.